Welcome to the Every Breath Counts podcast. My name is Ryan Sheckle, and each week I interview experts and leaders about their stories and strategies on how to optimize your mind, your body, your career, and your life so that you can make every breath count. Thank you for investing your time in the show and yourself. Now let's get started. Malcolm X said, education is the passport to the future, for tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for it today. Jenna Shulman is the CEO of JELF, the Jewish Education Loan Fund. After attending law school, Jenna saw many of her friends begin careers without meaning and decided to pursue a career in the not-for-profit sector. She was introduced to JELF by a former recipient of their program, and she knew she wanted to contribute to the idea that money should not stand between a student and the education that they need to excel in life. We talk about the importance of education and her experience as an executive, specifically in the not-for-profit sector, as well as the ever-changing landscape of student loans. If you like this episode, share it with a friend that might also enjoy it. If this is your first time here, welcome and thank you for tuning in. Be sure to click the subscribe button and stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And be sure to rate us and leave a review with the most impactful part of the podcast when you're done listening. Without further ado, my friend, Jenna Shalman. I go back to, to high school and I'm trying to actually remember any conversation I had with a counselor about future, career, anything. And it's funny because it's almost always like the same couple things that are job paths for people. It's like you could be a teacher you could be a doctor, you could be a lawyer. And then, you know, little boys, right? It's like, well, I'm going to be a professional football player. You know, it's like something like that. There's so many different career paths that people can pursue that we might not necessarily know or understand when we're younger. And I find it very interesting that you were drawn to not-for-profit through your education, because I think it opened up that door, and that's really interesting. And you're now the CEO of a not-for-profit, JELF, the Jewish Education Loan Fund. And how did you choose to get into JELF, or did JELF pursue you? Um, well, I think it was a little bit of both. After working for one nonprofit for almost 10 years, I was ready for a change, um, most specifically I recognized that the nonprofit I was working for, its mission was to advance education globally. And something that I realized as I learned more about nonprofit was that I did, I was interested in the local spin on the nonprofit organization. And so as I began seeking out new opportunities, um, JELF actually was presented to me in that I happened to meet somebody who was a criminal lawyer that I knew around town. And the next thing I know, she was mentioning JELF, asking me if it was something I ever heard of. I was honest and I had said, I, I don't know about JELF. And she proceeded to explain that she actually was aided by JELF after losing her father right before starting law school to things that coincided in her life, causing her to find JELF and utilize our interest-free aid for law school. And that was when I realized that there was a great synergy between the local aspects to what JELF provided. And I did go out for the job and was fortunate to, to land it. Wow. I didn't realize that um, you were introduced by someone who was helped by 
the company. That's really cool. And it actually, it goes to, it goes to underscore the importance of creating a network in, in your life and your business. And it's amazing how often people will find opportunity, not through like monster.com or Indeed, which are helpful platforms for finding jobs, but the network that they create for themselves within interpersonal relationships. So you find this job through this relationship. How has creating a network served you personally in your life? Gosh, I mean, there is, it's been endless. And I think that I always find that by creating a network, it's kind of like what goes around comes around. Uh, the more people that you meet in your life, it's like you just never know where somebody's skills or somebody's um, assistance might be able to provide you some opportunity. You know, in nonprofit organizations, we're always interested in having people who are able to lend their time or their expertise in something without necessarily charging us an arm and a leg can come in. And that's where having a network has provided proved to be so useful in the the, the sheer volume of, of favors that people want to do and 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 being able to rely on so many different people to call when you run into um, a question that you can't always solve on your own or without a tremendous amount of money involved. Yeah, it's it's almost like a grassroots effort in a way, right? Like when I think about a not-for-profit, oftentimes you don't think of like a major, large company not-for-profit. You almost think of like a startup company. And I guess you could be at different levels of the company you're within. But oftentimes when you're thinking about a, a startup company or a not-for-profit, you're thinking about the relationships you have and how to leverage who you know in different areas. And it's a really interesting thought that the larger your network is, it's not necessarily like you're trying to get something from someone, but you're almost like working within that network to lift each other up. And I think that's a really interesting thought. I mean, is that something when you're getting started at GELF or any not-for-profit or any startup for that matter, I mean, how are you proactively going out and managing that network to kind of get things done? No, I think that that's a really good point. And, you know, I think that for me, when I started at GELF, which was going on seven years ago now, um, one of the first things I did was work to leverage a lot of the connections that I had known prior to figure out whether there was any synergy. You know, I think that when people are changing from one nonprofit to another, it can be a little bit tricky because one thing you're not supposed to do and and that's, you know, not correct to do is to think that you can bring along your contacts with you. Um, you know, those that you may have met through a prior experience with nonprofit may feel poached or may feel awkward about hearing from you with context of your new nonprofit. So it's about actually trying to seamlessly weave it together and figure out whether at the right time and place there are relevant reasons to work to bring something into conversation with somebody that you might not have thought, you know, this this would be, you know, th there are just so many ways of leveraging your network once you know people and know what they're all about. You know, I've met people through a decade of my last nonprofit that now are utilizing JELF's financial aid or have been involved in some way, shape or form with my new organization, but it hasn't always been intentional. Yeah. How competitive is it? Because you said something that is in, it's, it's interesting because you think about like 
when someone leaves one company and then goes to another company, it's almost like there's there's usually a non-compete contract um, or some sort of contract saying like, you can't bring this proprietary information with you. You can't bring these clients with you. I know in sales, I'm often told, well, if I was going to go to a competitor, I don't just have a non-compete. I have a, I have a non-compete non-solicit, I believe is what it's called. So I can't even accept business um, from someone that I'm current, currently doing business with. You don't really think about that with a not-for-profit because it's like, well, someone's donating. Why can't they donate anywhere they want? Um, but that is the lifeblood of the company. I mean, that, that's that's really interesting to think about. You want to expand on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, um, you know, there's nonprofits that are similar to each other. There are nonprofits that are different. The nonprofit that I work for is the Jewish Educational Loan Fund, as you mentioned. And that puts us into a larger realm of other Jewish nonprofits that exist across a five-state region. They may all exist and do all exist for very separate purposes and missions. And so I think that having you know strict non-compete clauses and things like that between nonprofits would probably be difficult to uh, put together, to utilize, and to also oversee. You know, nonprofits don't always have the budget for these, you know, kind of things. But at the same time, you know, it does come down to the donor at the end of the day. And I would assume and think that most donors aren't, you know, this is not a sales product. Hopefully a nonprofit donation means more to the average donor. And even if they do do a one-time donation, that's still, uh, you know, there, there are some tricky things. There are some tricky things that go along with it all. Yeah. How, what kind of percentage of your donors are single time donors versus, and not just necessarily your company, but in terms of the not-for-profit industry, what percentage of donors are single time donors versus, I don't even know what you'd call it, consistent or. Yeah. So we have about a 30, a 30% drop off between 2019 and 2020. And that, that was probably our largest drop-off that we've had in some years. And what I attribute that big, big percentage is the fact that we had been very accustomed to having annual galas. And with a gala being able to pull in six or 700 individuals, you know, oftentimes we had individuals who came to our events and made a, a token donation and uh, possibly would have been invited back the following. But with COVID happening and us having to cancel events, we did see a very large drop off in our one time donations. And so, you know, we work hard to try and get those back. And um, it, it doesn't always work that way. I mean, different donors come through different portals of giving. Yeah. So let's dive into that a little bit, because I'm curious to know, it's it's like a parallel with most industries is how you retain um, clients or retain donors. What kind of strategies do you guys utilize to retain donors? It's a great fund and it's, it goes to a good cause. But like you said, if, if you kind of fall off the radar, then a donation might go elsewhere. And these people are great people, but they just might choose a different, a different foundation to donate to. No, 
know, that that's a really good point. And I think that what they often say in the nonprofit world, or at least I've heard, is that it takes anywhere between six to eight touch points to retain a donor or to continue a donor's experience with you on a cyclical level. And so, you know, t- different touch points have to come into play throughout the year. A touch point could be as simple as a happy holidays uh, e-blast. It could be a letter that they receive in the mail, um, an annual report that's sent to them. It could be a phone call. It could be an invitation to an event um, or one uh, all those combination of things. And I think that by continuing to ensure that we're outreaching at the right times of year, it's like you want to find that perfect balance between not too much, not too little, just sort of just right. And then we also have, you know, those circumstances where people are opting out of e-blasts or don't want to hear from you on a certain level, but still don't say that they don't want to be a donor anymore. And so it gets even trickier to figure out how to continue to retain them. And it is not an easy job. I know that I have two development people on my team who are working very hard. Yeah, that I can't imagine that balance. And I'm trying to think back into different different areas that I've donated for and then also just like email blasts in general and when you when you said that I was like yeah like I I opt out of email blasts just because I don't want emails but it doesn't mean I'm not interested in the service anymore either it, it's yeah. a really interesting balance to try to maintain um, are there any like tricks that you found work in in maintaining that balance um, we stray away from always using e-blast because we know that our opt-out rate or our unsubscribe rate is, is, you know, it's hard for us. You know, I mean, I think that as the professionals involved, you almost take personal offense, even though you know you shouldn't to any unsubscribers. And so by ensuring that we do the most personal communication other than e-blast, you know, you can't really opt out of a personal email in the same way. And so I think that one tool is that we'll use e-blasts for things that are uh, much more harmless a couple times a year and and not, you know, driving, hammering it home with people, but rather than taking a step back and doing a Dear Ryan and getting to you as personally as we can. And also we look at the data, you know, I mean, how does this person usually give? If if a person gives over the phone every single year, then it's probably going to be a phone call that's going to drive home that donation and so on. That makes sense. I was actually, I was talking to someone the other day and they had mentioned, um, we were just talking about leadership and we were talking about, um, uh, what I'm trying to think of exactly how this conversation went, but it was, um, how you cannot lead via text and email. And it's funny because you bring up the fact that you can opt out of an email. Well, it's much harder to opt out of a relationship, like a personal relationship. So if you're maintaining not just that email aspect, that blast, that that constant ask, then it's a lot easier, I think, to maintain that engagement. And I know that you guys do a great job with your galas. I mean, how do you decide or what goes into the process of creating, setting up and executing uh, a gala event? Um, well, I think that for us, it's always been about the more, the more people that you can drive there. We found that we can give the most impact when somebody is sitting there and, you know, you can give someone a seven minute video to watch, but 
there's probably a 10% chance they'll actually watch it or stay hooked for the whole seven minutes. But if we have an audience that we've fed and are sitting there, then we've got them for those seven minutes. And so we've got them from the beginning of the end of the video. So strategically, the more people that we place in seats, the better chances we are at stealing, you know, people's tugging at people's heartstrings and stealing the deal for an actual donation to come later. And so I think that's where it has been harder not being able to have the galaxy still made great videos, but how do we know that they're really being watched from beginning to end? Um, thus the concept of the virtual gala. Um, you know, I've been, I, I've, I've kind of gone back and forth on this, but my personal model has always been to charge very little or nothing for people to actually come to a gala. And that kind of, for some people, that doesn't sound like a gala anymore because you think about a gala as being a very costly thing to go to, right? So if it's free, I guess one could argue that it it, it takes away from its um, excitement or um, yeah, it's almost not VIP. Exclusivity, right? exclusivity. Yeah. Exactly. That being said, um, for us, we've net way more when we've charged a lot less for an entry fee, meaning that if we were going to charge $100 a person, so a couple had already spent $200 by the time they walked in the room, I think that you know, for some people, we might be lucky if they gave us another $100 while they were sitting there. But if they had, if they had come and paid very little to get there, Statistics show us that we might be more willing or likely to get a thousand dollar donation if we hadn't charged them on the front end to feel like they we were charging them for their food. So I think that there are little models that we've come to. But that being said, the pandemic has changed everything. And I don't know when or even if we're going to go back to our large, large gala model. You know, it's caused us to recognize how much business we're capable of doing online. And um what we might be able to do to build traction, not just in Metro Atlanta, but in some of the other areas that we serve. Yeah. And Jenna, I know that you guys serve five states. You serve Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. What have you done to pivot in COVID? It's amazing. I, what One thing I love is I love talking to leaders in different companies and seeing how they have adapted to such a dramatic disruption of industry? Yeah, it's been dramatic. And I think that it was something that we never could have predicted. Last February of 2020 was the last time that I went on a business trip where I was in South Florida along with my colleague. And I think over a three-day trip, I mean, we wore ourselves out just meeting with person after person after person throughout a, a three-day stint. And Shortly after that was when the world shut down. And at first it was like, oh no, we're not going to be able to get on a road trip like that for a while. And how are we going to, to make up for it? But what we realized after things got a little bit more comfortable online was that the average meeting that we were going to was taking us sometimes an hour and a half to two hours when you included the travel time there, the meeting, the parking and everything else. And what we actually could do is you know, replace a lot of these longer meetings with sometimes what was a 20, 30 minute session with the same person, neither one of us having to go anywhere and utilizing the pandemic and the situation as an obvious reason why we weren't traveling and finding that many people were really liking it more. And I think that it was saving everybody's time in a good way. 
and also making it a lot more convenient to ask a person to connect us with the next person. In other words, the next layer in the process. We would say to someone, well, you know what? This was 15 minutes. We're glad we could inspire you. If you have another person that you might be willing to get onto a Zoom for 15 minutes, we'd be open to talking to them too and seeing how that domino effect of utilizing Zoom has actually played in. That's really an interesting revelation. I'm curious throughout the pandemic, have people been reluctant to donate their money? It seems like as there's less revenue around for different companies and there could be paycheck implications for individuals. Have you seen that there is more of a reluctance now for people to donate? No, I have not. And I think that was a major fear that we all had when March of 2020 first hit. And that from March to about May, we were treading on water, not knowing if it was, it didn't feel appropriate to ask people for donations. I think everybody was very uh, tied up with mentally and looking at the stock market daily and worrying and wondering. But I think once we crossed a certain point in 2020, um, for a lot of people, uh, unless they were in a very specific industry that was really hard hit by the pandemic, in which case we took our cues appropriately. But for most people who not only recovered, but started to realize what an astronomical savings 2020 was for them in not going to a lot of the travel that they had done. And, you know, especially for people with a lot of capacity, the savings was a lot larger than people realize. And so a lot of that money, um, it made it a lot easier in many ways to ask for charity during 2020. Yeah, that's, that's a great testament to the human character, I think. Amidst a, go- a global pandemic, and disruption internationally, people still were able to take a step back and say, you know what, I'm willing to donate for a cause that is going to help humanity. And I love that. I love that people didn't just hoard everything. And I think it definitely goes to speak to the, to the heart of just the human character. And I love hearing that you guys were still seeing just that that heart and that love for each other to kind of shine through. So tell me and tell the listeners what specifically what specifically it is that Jelf does. What service do you provide? Okay, so the service that Jelf provides is that we lend dollars without charging any interest to Jewish students who are in need. They have to prove their need. And they also have to be from the five-state region, which you previously named. Um, And in addition, the money is exclusively to be used for furthering their undergraduate, graduate, or technical school education. So basically, anything that's after 12th grade, anything that would help a student or an individual focus on their career and focus on becoming an independent person and who needed the funding interest-free to get them through to the end of that path. And so the way that we do it is we actually make out the check to the applicant or the student and the money can be used for more than just tuition and fees. It can be used for books, for food, for healthcare, for 
uh, any kind of living, transportation, gas, mileage, airfare, whatever. You know, I mean, lots of things come up when you're a student and a lot of people don't realize how expensive it really can be. That's why there are students who can never travel home the entire year that they're in school because they don't have the funds to get there or students who are sacrificing crucial medical needs um, or not able to purchase all that they need to get through. And a lot, a lot has been written up there in the news recently about, you know, hunger within the college community. And so that's another thing that we aim to tackle. And so what we do is we look at a student's full need and we try to bridge the gap between what they have and what they need. And we support them annually. Um, a student could go through JELF with us from, you know, I think that we have one student right now who's in their 10th year, meaning that they did four years of undergrad, four years of medical school, and then they went on to do a two-year PhD. And so that was 10 years of education in a row that we were able to support them for. And they'll never pay us back a dime until their final graduation, at which point they'll pay back interest-free eight years. And their payments, their repayments start very small and then gradually increase as the eight years go on. So you're only paying 5% of the principal for the first two years. And I think that, you know, JELF, what we really stand for is helping to, you know, ensure that we as a Jewish community are really there for the students that need us the most. It's kind of like we say, we're oftentimes the grandmother, grandfather, aunt, or uncle that they didn't have to go borrow money from. And short of us, they'd be borrowing it from the government or from a bank with high interest. Yeah, such a cool concept. And I know that JELF was started in 1961. And it's amazing. I was reading up on on the amount of money that you guys have actually contributed. And it's, I, I don't know how accurate this is, but it, it said that you guys have donated, or I'm sorry, provided $16 million in interest-free loans since 1961. That is a ton of financial support for the community. So, I mean, that's unbelievable. I'm curious how you decided, and I know it wasn't you since you started with them, obviously, after 1961. Did it always start as interest-free loans, or has it kind of adapted, or... How did that work? And is that the plan for the future? Or are you starting to consider other donations? Well, I think one thing that makes JELF very interesting is that our history actually extends well before 1961, where we originally started as an orphanage. And the purpose of the orphanage back in the late 1800s was really to help care for Jewish students or sorry, Jewish youth who had been displaced in the Southeast region of the United States. And, um, were without either one or both parents able to take care of them. And without a Jewish orphanage, these students or kids were being placed in any orphanage, often with a Christian denomination, and taking them away from the roots that they had been born into. And so it was very special when the Hebrew Orphans Home, as it was called then, was able to be there as a footing for students for many years. And so after the Hebrew Orphans Home, what happened was that in the 1920s, orphanages were no longer considered the right way to bring up kids. They you know, needed moms and dads. Foster care system was really up and coming. And orphanages across the United States started closing and changing and morphing into what they were becoming. And so we did the same and we morphed into a foster care and adoption agency. And then fast forward through the years. 
the same kids that we had been helping through the system, you know, were eventually going past 12th grade and the families that had supported them and where they had lived were turning back to the agency saying, help us, you know, we don't know how to get this student to college. There's no funding there. And so again, we shifted to be able to support these students through their higher education in a realization that if we didn't get them through the final hurdle, we really weren't doing anything for them. And so that's where we became gelled. And I think that where that leads me to today is the fact that we have been a very unique organization in the sense that we've been able to continue to shift our path over the years. And we, we think the same thing now. We think about all of the crucial college and you know debt-related topics that are out there every single day, including whether you know, student loans should be forgiven and, and so many different things. And we constantly are in strategy about how we'll continue to provide the support to the deserving people within our community if or when times change. I had no idea that that's how you guys started. That's, it's, it's a beautiful story. I had no idea. Yeah, the old the first building was actually over by Turner, the old Turner Field, and oh really? We owned it. We owned it till the 1970s when it was sold to a church. It was a gorgeous big old building, and then um, that's actually where we got our original endowment was through the sale of the building, and that allowed us to continue moving forward. And today, that still stands at around four million dollars, which is our investment fund, and we use a uh, you know interest bearing portion of it each year to help us as one of our cash sources. That's so cool. That's a really cool. I love that story so much. Um, what is it about the Jewish community that values bringing everyone up so much um, and, and just values helping the community? probably our small, the fact that we're small in a minority. And I think that that's a common uh, core belief in a lot of minority communities that exist. You know, we help each other and that, uh, you know, doing charitable mission starts at home. Uh, I think, you know, Ryan, I think back to an interesting conversation that you and I had many years ago where you told me that you had never actually heard about interest-free lending or the concept of interest-free lending and that you had tried to Google it or look it up. And, and, and for some odd reason, you told me everything kept pointing you back to the Jewish community. And you asked me if that was a coincidence. And, and my answer to you at the time was that it, it really isn't a coincidence because interest-free lending is a principle that's firmly rooted in Jewish custom and belief. I think there's a, a specific line in the Torah that says that a Jewish person will never charge interest to another Jewish person. And that while we don't always take that so far on a daily level, you know, the principle behind it is that we want to support each other up and that education single-handedly uprooted us from where we were as a people to where we became. And so we firmly believe that, in, you know, money should not be what stands in the way between a deserving student and what they need to become an independent individual. And that's where we've chosen to invest our money specifically. Yeah. So obviously education is of utmost importance to Jelf and and to the Jewish community. What was it like growing up in a Jewish home with a focus on education? 
yeah, I think that, um, you know, for me, I was, I grew up in Miami and I grew up with a large Jewish community surrounding me in the South Florida area where there's a very high percentage of, of Jewish people. And I probably took for granted the fact that I was always supposed to go and get a degree. And I never thought that it would be over for me after 12th grade. You know, it was always conditioned in me and something that I thought and knew that I would do and persevere through, even if it wasn't always exactly what I wanted. And I think that, you know, is not conditioned in everyone and that times have changed a lot, even over the last 25 years where college costs have really skyrocketed since the year 2000. And it has become much more of a choice for individuals who look at this, the sticker price of college and say, well, gosh, I don't want to invest that because what, you know, and they think that they can do it without the degree. And I think that's where, you know, we're there to try to remind people that nine times out of 10, it's still going to be your education that you get by on. You know, you see a lot of incredible stories out there about billionaires who didn't have a college degree. And those are inspirational, wonderful stories that I think we all wish could be the norm. But sadly, they're the minority and that it, we, we want to be there to impress upon people that, you know, your education, I didn't even actually wind up going into a field that I studied, but it was having the education that allowed me, I believe, to climb a ladder faster than I would have been able to. Yeah, you talk about and you, you use the term investment when you spoke about education. And I love the way, I love that concept of education being an investment. And I talk to our kids about the importance of education and how it will serve you in the future. Being at Jelf, do you ever find yourself trying to sell the idea of greater education to potential students that might be looking at the loan? Or are they all pretty much coming to you saying like, I know I have to do this? Yeah, I think that we probably are already capturing them at a point in which they've made their decision. You know, we're usually the last step in their financial aid as opposed to the first in that we're a gap loan. So it's important to us to understand how much someone has been able to bring to the table. And so they've had to go through a myriad of other um, applications and things like that before coming to gel. Um, that being said, we have done talks and we have had you know, opportunities to inspire and influence high schoolers and other groups of, of people to let them know that, you know, there are other, I mean, just like I explained before, JELP covers both undergrad, graduate, as well as vocational and technical school. You know, we put a lot of value and emphasis on the fact that a four-year undergraduate bachelor's degree might not be the right move for everybody. And there are a lot of ways to go get a solid education and learn a skill or a trade that don't have to be as traditional as you might have always thought, you know, and, and I think that goes true for parents too. You know, a lot of times parents have a dream of a four-year education for their student, but maybe they need to be schooled that it's 2021 and there are a lot of choices out there. Yeah. I'm going to ask you something and I, and I, we talked about it already, but I'm curious to get your opinion on this because right now on the political scene, there is a big push and a focus on this idea of loan forgiveness for students for college. And while I don't necessarily 
have to ask you about your opinion on it. I'm curious, as the CEO of an educational loan fund, how you feel like this will affect college and how you feel like it'll affect your company. Well, I think that we're probably, it's a great question, Ryan, and one that we think about every day. You know, I think that there's probably not a day that goes by that someone doesn't send me the top three articles that are out there all on this topic. And so we're, we're certainly keeping a very careful watch on hot, these hot topics and how they play out governmentally and within the United States as a whole. You know, I think there's always going to be the need for education. And so how GELF may pivot if suddenly education is all free is a very interesting thing for us to think about. You know, I mean, education is still going to cost something, private education. And we we fund so many other expenses. Again, what we always call the hidden costs of college that most people aren't thinking about when it comes to these things. And I think that you know, we will continue, I have no doubt, to advance on whatever the current needs of our students within our target demographic are needing. You know, that being said, as we watch what's going on right now, I think we're still a little bit of a ways off. You know, there are very specific situations and very uh, specific amounts that are being currently forgiven. And my guess is that that will continue to happen for the foreseeable future. You know, we're big fans of loan forgiveness too, though. And in fact, in 2020, we had a foundation that specifically invested in us to help uh, forgive the loans of 11 deserving borrowers from our portfolio. We were able to, in a very fun surprise Zoom call, let 11 people know that their loan balance from JELF was completely forgiven. And it was a, a real, it, it was an extremely heartwarming and touching experience. And we love the idea of forgiveness and are all about trying to create more opportunities to do so within our realm. What a cool answer. And I'm going to try to unpack it and correct me if I'm wrong in any of this, because I think this is a really profound perspective. You are in a company, you run a company that is in the business of providing loans. Yet your, your mission for this company is essentially making education affordable for the Jewish community. And if there is some other way to make education affordable, you guys are all in on it because it helps further your mission. And I love the idea that even though it may cause complete headache and it may disrupt your entire company because it furthers your mission, you're completely supportive of it. That's 100%. Exactly. I mean, we just want to get people to the finish line in whatever way we can. And that's where we've always stood. Um, And so it's really not about, you know, what we do as much as who we're helping and what we're helping them for. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I'm also curious because I've actually spoken to a lot of, um, a lot of women leaders now. And do you feel like you're at any sort of disadvantage or advantage being a female CEO? No, you know, I've never really thought about it from a gender angle in the sense that I've always been a very strong female um, and come from a 
mother who also was a full-time, you know, worked full-time. So I wasn't like the first female in my family to ever work full-time. And I think that that can be very different for a female when it's there, just like a college graduate, you know, when you feel like you're the first one in your family, you're almost like wearing the, the big shoes, you know? Yeah. And um, by contrast, I've always been very confident um, in my angle and approach and 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 I believe that it's really about the right person for the role when it comes to leadership. That makes sense. And I've met your mom and she's amazing and a powerhouse. Um, is she a role model to you? Of course, of course. And my mom is the first example and the best example of someone who showed me that you really could do everything. I love it. I love it. Um, tell me how people can reach out and donate to Jelf? Good question. Well, the easiest way to donate is online, as is everything these days. And so I invite people who are interested in just learning a little bit more about our model or about making a contribution to go to Jelf.org. And that's J-E-L-F.org. And for the donation specific part of the site, you would just add a slash donate to the end. But I think that you'll find that um, we provide a lot of interesting information throughout our site, including a lot of other financial aid options. So for those who may not qualify for JELF's aid because they're either not in our geographic region, because they're not Jewish, or one of any number of reasons, we have over 100 other options that are housed in a really good area on our site um, called Other Financial Aid Options. And there is a lot to learn about a great model that's very sustainable and interest-free lending. So you guys have a lot of amazing galas over the course of the time that you have been there. So I normally ask this one question a certain way. I'm going to kind of pivot and ask it a different way for you, but you can answer it however you like. What is the most inspirational or influential, I don't even think that's a word, but influential book you've ever read or speaker you've ever had at an event and why? Well, I think um, last year's book and speaker was really phenomenal, you know, right in the face of the pandemic when everybody was just sort of beside themselves. uh, Somebody had given me a book called Grit and it was a fantastic read by a wonderful author and psychologist, Angela Duckworth. And she's been, she's talked about the topic of grit nationally and internationally for years now. And lo and behold, we actually got her to be our live guest speaker during a Zoom um, event, a virtual event where we had over 400 viewers. That was last June. And I have to say that Angela's message of grit could not have been more timely and really resonated with our audiences. And it then turned out that this year, another interesting author named John Gordon is going to be our speaker at our upcoming virtual gala. John is the best-selling author of over 20 self-help books, including The Energy Bus, The Coffee Bean. Uh, Gosh, he has so many best-selling titles. If you just looked his name up on Amazon, you'd probably be shocked to realize that he wrote so many things that you caught your eye before in the bookstore. He also has a great TED Talk. And Again, John is all about the power of positive. And I think that between Angela this year, and, and it happens to be random that they're friends with each other, these two authors, which is not even at all what I envisioned. But but I think that, you know, 
these difficult and trying times have put a lot on us to have to take a look inside ourselves and look at look at a lot of these timely messages. I'm very excited about John Gordon. That'll be June 1st. That's awesome. If you could have a drink, sit down for a happy hour and have a drink with anyone in the world, past or present, who would it be and why? I think I'm probably going to have to go with a Steve Jobs because, you know, I, I just think there's something so phenomenal about what he was able to do with his career in his short career, really. And, um, you know, that, that, that's not been replicated by too many out there. And he had, he's had such a fascinating life. And I think it would just be so incredible to be able to ask him some questions, sit down with him and ask him things from personal to business related. But of course, that's, that will never happen. And uh, I don't know that we'll ever have another Steve Jobs. So I would imagine that you still have a ton of book left to write. But if you were going to subtitle an autobiography, what would that subtitle be? Jenna Shulman. I'd like to say kill it with kindness because that's always been my motto. Um, You know, for me, kindness is everything. And the, the kinder you are, the more you get. And it, it's not to say that you be kind so you get things, but you just find out what a long way it goes. And I've always felt that when the going gets tough, you know, you, you, you toss a little kindness in and it, it, that's, that's the secret. That's awesome. It's, it, it reminds me too. It's so funny. So for anyone that doesn't know, which I'm sure is most people listening to this, Jenna... Uh, and I were neighbors for years, for three years. Um, and we would go outside and our kids would play together. And to this day, my oldest son, what he remembers of Jenna Shulman is when he got to go play with her son, he got the best brownies he's ever had. And, <laughs> and it was that kindness of just coming out with something to eat for the kids. Um, Jenna, I love you. I miss you. I wish we still lived next to each other, but thank you so much for taking the time to talk and spending an hour with me. This truly was a pleasure, and I know we're going to catch up soon again, but I appreciate you dedicating an hour of your time to talk to me. Thank you, Ryan. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and share it with a friend. And don't forget, make every breath count.